views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. Listening to the Break the Business Podcast, I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. Our guest this week is the lead singer and bassist for the all-female psychedelic rock band Ace of Cups. Originally founded in 1967 and sharing the stage with legends such as Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, and others, Ace of Cups is back making music today. Their latest album, Sing Your Dreams, dropped this year and features contributions from Jackson Brown, Sheila E., and others. You can find out more about our guest's work by visiting www.aceofcups.com. We are happy to welcome Denise Kaufman onto the Break the Business podcast. Hi, Denise. Hi, Ryan. Oh, gosh. This is this is so exciting for me. I, um, I, I can't believe I have access to somebody who has so much experience, so much history in the music business that I get to share some... Uh, some thoughts with him before we talk about ace of cups and we talk about the record i i'd love for you if you could to indulge us in just taking us back to that time for a bit uh, you know getting to be around musicians like joplin and the grateful dead and Jimi hendrix so I, I can tell you my mom who was you know a, a product of the 60s and also was a musician like you would tell me this really funny story of being a student in gainesville in the 1960s and john janice joplin is playing uh, when her band is opening for Janis Joplin and, and Joplin's producers, her handlers go to my mom and say, we need you to watch Janis before the show and make sure she doesn't cause any trouble, make sure she doesn't do anything that she shouldn't be doing. And so my mom was basically Janis Joplin's uh, babysitter <laughs> before a show. And as my mom tells the story, she might not have been completely responsible with Joplin because she didn't want to miss out on an opportunity to party with Joplin for a bit. But, hey, it was the 60s. I'm curious, do you have any, like, like if you had to just wow somebody with a really cool rock star story from the 60s with one of these music legends, do you have a good one for us? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, um, do you want to know how Jerry Garcia got his name Captain Trips? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> so um, I was, uh, before I was in the Ace of Cups, I was uh, one of Ken Kesey's Married Franksters on the bus. And um, the, our band was the Grateful Dead. And in the early days, we were, we were doing these events called the Acid Tests, where we would rent a space or obtain a big space and then create this musical happening with lights and put these vats of Kool-Aid, um, one of which was electric, which had LSD in it, which at the time was not illegal. Um, and then the other vat would just be regular Kool-Aid. So we had a, a, one of our acid tests was in East Palo Alto at a club that was closed at the time called the Big Beat and we rented it for the night. And um, between the two sets, Jerry Garcia and I walked outside that they had played a great set and Jerry and I walked out to the parking lot, which was empty at the time. And we were just getting some fresh air and Jerry was wearing this kind of cool cap and we were just kind of enjoying the night and up drove this police car. Oh. Um, now you have to know that inside the club, there were a lot of people that were on LSD, right? <laughs> yeah. So seeing the police car drive up was not the best 
thing to see. And this one cop got out of the police car, walks over to us, and he kind of walks over with this sort of aggressive manner, just like, what's going on here, you know, and walked up. And I don't know the words that he said, but as he got close to us, Jerry did the most, like, he, he like, Jerry, like, met his energy with this kind of sweetness and calm in such a way that it was like, uh, like a like a master martial arts move, and and by the time the guy was standing next to us, he was just speechless, you know. And, and Jerry just was like smiling at him, and just said, "said What's going on?" And he said, "Oh, everything's okay." And the guy just said, "Fine," and he just turned around, and in a whole different kind of way of walking, started to walk back to his police car. And Jerry picked up his cap and just tipped it toward him and said. Caps trip I said trips captain like that trips captain and it was like I was like how did you do that how did you just turn that energy into such sweetness you know and we walked inside and I found Kesey and I said I just saw Jerry do something magical and I told him the story and from then on Jerry was known as Captain Trips from Trips Captain <laughs> the idea of a of a uh, tripping. Jerry Garcia hypnotizing an officer of the law. <laughs> it was like a, a, was like a Bruce Lee move, you know what I mean? Like somebody comes in with one energy and just and like a, was like a magical alchemical moment. And Jerry did that a lot, actually. That's amazing. I, I want to hear more about just this time. like, And through your perspective, uh, you know, you started a Ace of Cups in 1967, all-female psychedelic rock band. And I, and I think the first all-female rock band in San Francisco. So w- what was it like in that time starting an all-female band? Was this something where uh, you faced resistance? Was there discrimination? Or were people welcoming to a group like this? Well, first of all, I was the last one to join. They, uh, the other four already had met and just were playing together. So I met um, Marielle and the the lead guitarist on uh, New Year's Eve, the last night of 1966 at a party at Blue Cheer's house. And um, so that's, so, you know, and then I went over to meet this band she told me about uh, the next week. So I was the last one to enter. So, you know, they had said, they were, she told me that they were starting an all women's band and I had been in bands before, but I was the only woman in bands before, that I'd been in before. So I was, I never had really thought there, I had never considered being in an all-girl band or that there was an all-girl band in terms of rock music or psychedelic music. I mean, I'd, I'd seen all women jazz bands on television or even classical, but so when we got together, it, you know, it was sort of like run it up the flagpole and see if anybody will salute it. You know, <laughs> we just started playing and that was the good part. We just really enjoyed playing together and we started writing right from the get-go. Um, I had come in with a number of songs of my own. I'd already made a 45, a record before, and I had a bunch of original songs. But we started writing as a band right from the get-go. And um, there was kind of what, when you just asked, was it resistance or was there support? There was both. Um, Okay. I think the resistance that sometimes was more in the larger um, community I remember when our, our, we had one manager for a little while, Ambrose, and then he turned us over to his friend, Ron Polte. Um, but when we first started working with Ron, he, he called 
um, this club on Broadway in San Francisco, there was a, a whole strip of clubs there. They were mostly, you know, kind of strip clubs or, or you know, topless clubs. But there was also, <laughs> that's where Basin Street West and the Jazz Workshop and the committee were all on that street in North Beach in San Francisco. So it was a funny mix of things at, at that time, 66, 60, 67. But he called it, the Peppermint Lounge was a club that kind of was a little sleazy, but sometimes, so sometimes it, I don't know what else was going on there, but I had seen Little Richard play there. So they did have good music there sometimes. Yeah. And so I'm called there to see if we could get a gig and said, you know, I'm representing this all women's band and they'd like to come in and audition. And the manager said, I'll hire him. And mine said, well, would you like them to come and audition? And I said, no, 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 I'll just hire them. Sight unseen. Um, topless. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, well. Our manager laughed and called and said, this is what they told me. You have to play top. And he, you know, I said, tell him we won't play topless, but we'll play naked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't ever go there. <laughs> wow. Uh, just I- incredible. And so you you were really at, at sort of the forefront of this incredible era of music where you played alongside and open for all of these amazing artists and were just really a part of the psychedelic rock scene, especially what was going on in San Francisco and on the West coast. I'm curious about something, Denise, because I'm just gathering this from what I've read online about you all. You started in 1967, you played with all of these legendary artists, but somehow despite all of this Ace of Cups didn't actually release its debut studio album until 2018, more than 50 years later. Uh, and perhaps this is a, a longer a, a oversimplification of the question, but how does that happen? Well, first of all, you know, when you introduced me, you said I was the lead singer in the Ace of Cups. We don't have a lead singer. We have five singers. So we have five lead singers, five people who write. And so our band is based a, a lot on like harmony and and kind of counter melodies and a lot of our music, the 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 focus in terms of lead singing shifts around between us all, you know, it's a very kind of cooperative band in that way. Um, so I think there was a certain period where the San Francisco bands were all getting signed. Um, and we were a little behind that curve. Um, and then there was sort of some sort of second wave bands. I think when the record labels came to San Francisco looking for bands. I mean, you have to know there were no other all women bands signed anywhere, you know, maybe in England, but you know, you know, as far as the West Coast, there certainly weren't. And so they, I think they just looked at us and because we had five lead singers and a kind of a, I call us trans genre, you know. You didn't fit we, into a box. You know, we're, and we just sort of didn't fit into kind of any boxes that you could check, I think. and. You know, we were hippies and we played barefoot and, you know, I just, I just think they looked at us and couldn't figure out what we were. And, um, and we just sort of missed that. You know, I mean, I don't know, because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't the people that didn't sign us. And we got offered, you know, at the very end, a really bad deal from Fantasy and Grunt Records. They wanted to sign us, which was the Jefferson Airplanes label, but that never really happened. So there were a few kind of rumblings of things, but nothing got real, you know. Wow. And, and then, and then, you know, we went our separate ways. We were having children, 
And so how it happened all through the intervening years, we all kept playing music in different settings and different bands, but, and then every once in a while we'd all get together or, or a few of us would get together and spend a week together or spend four days together and just play our songs. Because the thing about having all this original material, which is what we did was, you know, it never sounded, I mean, there were just people we couldn't play it with because they didn't know it and they didn't know where all the parts should be and where the voices need to come in and all the weird things that we did in some of our songs, all the counter melodies. So, you know, when we got together, we loved to play our music. And, um, you know, and then in, when the, we had a live album come out, um, uh, an album made of old live tapes and rehearsal tapes that came out in, um, you know, things that, you know, basically reel-to-reels that had been carried around, you know, and stored in people's garages for 35 years. And then um, Ace Records in England, thanks to Alec Palau, um, went through all of those tapes and found, you know, enough to make a, 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 like a retrospective live album. Uh, from that, the um, person who owns our current label, High Moon Records, George heard that album and reached out to us. And, you know, over time and some uh, really wonderful things happening, he ended up um, inviting us to go into the studio and make an album, which turned into a double album, which turned into two albums, and we'll have one more in a year. Wow. We have a lot of material. That's great. Uh, as, as somebody who's been listening to a lot of your music and enjoying the heck out of it, I am very thrilled to know that there's more where that came from. Your story intrigues me, and it really fits in with the overall theme of this podcast because we are a podcast that's all about celebrating the, the you know celebrating the modern musician, celebrating sort of this independent spirit that today's musicians can have, where uh, you can you have more flexibility than ever over when you can make music, how you can make music. A lot more so than, say, your band did in the 1960s. From what you're telling me in your story, you were sort of a victim of big record industry politics. There were only a few labels out there, and if none of them wanted to make your record or you didn't fit into their box, you didn't get to make your music and have it heard by the world. And uh, now today we don't live in that world, and you can make the kind of music and we all get to enjoy it. Can can you reflect on that a bit about how the music business has changed between back then and now in terms of the opportunities you now have to make more music than ever? Right. Well, first of all, in that time, when we started, you know, there was not even FM radio. I mean, that was just getting going. Wow. So there was, you know, well, let me say just before we started, I made a, a, a record when I was 18, 19, uh, 45, and it was, um, you know, there were like a hundred of them printed. <laughs> And there was in those days in San Francisco, this one guy who basically said what got on the radio and it was only AM radio and what didn't, his name was Bill Gavin. And he had a thing called the Gavin Report. And to get played on the radio, Bill Gavin had to, you know, give thumbs up to your song. And when I, when, when Lonnie Hewitt, who was the producer and uh, owner of the little record label called We Records, W-E-E, took that record to Bill Gavin to see if we could get airplay. Bill Gavin said, women can't say that. That's too raw. That can't be on the radio. There's no way. Um, and, you know, then, then in the, that, so the song never, never was heard on the air until it became sort of a cult hit and, and is sort of considered a prototypical punk song now. And, 
Um, we actually, I did a version of it with the with Ace of Cups on this, on our new record, Sing Your Dreams. But, you know, the, the original 45, there's only two of them known to exist in the world. I don't have them, but one of them sold for $10,000 on eBay. It's considered, you know, a rarity. Wow. But, you know, so that, that was like kind of my first experience in the music industry was like, no, women can't say that, you know, <laughs> that, you know, as George who owns our record label always says, you know, at that same time as I was told women couldn't say that the Beatles were singing, you know, you better run for your life. If I catch you with another man, you know, it was like, I'd rather see you dead little girl than be with another man. Right. So men could sort of seems like say any violent thing they wanted. Although I'm sure John Lennon, I know he regretted that song later, but um, but women were very uh, proscribed about what they could say. Yeah, I, I noticed. A... About, don't tell me about monogamy. I'm not buying it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I noticed there's a, a couple really powerful themes that you're talking about here. One is this idea that back then there were more music industry gatekeepers than there are now. There were people like that radio DJ who just decided, who, who basically got to decide whether you got to be on the radio or not. And back then radio was the only way to get your music publicized. And, you know, there are record labels that controlled, you know, who got mass, their music mass produced. And now today those gatekeepers don't have as much influence so people can put out music. And the other piece that you talked about, which I think is equally valuable, is just the opportunities that exist for women today in music that didn't exist uh, back in the beginning, where women can make more music and, 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 and touch on themes musically than they, than they weren't able to 50 years ago. And certainly there's a long way that women still need to go to have equality in music, but it's, uh, we've definitely made some strides there. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I, I love hearing just how, how uh, the industry has changed for you as a woman between 1967 and today. Right. Well, I think now because of Zoom and YouTube and you know, all the ways that there are to directly connect with people, you don't have you don't have those gatekeepers yeah um and that gives everyone you know pretty much maybe not q and on these days but gives <laughs> pretty much you know anyone a chance to really share their music and be able to make a direct connection with those hearts and minds that they touch you know and it's really to me the the thing that i always loved about music and our band loved is like who are those people who who's your tribe and in those days, you met your tribe in live settings through the ballrooms. And, you know, especially if you didn't have a record out, which we didn't. We only met people through live playing. Um, now, you know, you can meet your tribe from all over the world. And we have people that write to us from all over the world. Um, and they're a varied selection of people. You know, it could be a 23-year-old guy in Argentina who says, I love your music. Or, you know, somebody in... Moscow, you know, it's, you know, we don't have, you know, we're not like millions of fans, you know, we're, we're just us. But the really sweet thing is that, you know, I'm corresponding with or online with people from France and the guy from Italy and this guy from, you know, England. And, and uh, it's, it's so nice to make those personal connections. So I'm all about that. Our band is all about that. Well, and I can tell you that a, a lot of folks are getting to fall in love with your music, a, a whole new generation, myself included, who have had the joy of getting to discover your band and 
Just really enjoy this album, and I've really gotten a kick out of listening to your latest album, Sing Your Dreams. Listeners, I encourage you to go to aceofcups.com and find out more about this album and, and about our guests' work generally. Can you tell the listeners a bit about Sing Your Dreams? I imagine you must be so proud of it. Yes, we are. You know, this, So this is our second studio album. Uh, the first one was just Ace of Cups, and that was a double album. That was from uh, November 2018. Um, and luckily, on both of these albums, we've had some of our old friends from back in the day come and do guest slots with us. Um, on the first one, we had Taj Mahal, Buffy St. Marie, um, you know, Yorma Kalkinen, Jack Cassidy. On this one, we have um, Wavy Gravy, our dear, dear friend, doing his iconic song, um, um, Basic Human Needs. And we have a video for that that we love. We have um, Jackson Brown singing with us, Bobby Weir and David Freiberg do a little chorus with us on Made for Love. Um, so we have Sheila E doing percussion on our song Jai Ma, Sheila E and her whole family, moms and pops and her brothers, Peter, Michael and Juan. So we've had, we ha we've had a really good time. Bakiti Kubalo plays bass on that, for, who's the bass player from Lady Smith, Black Mambazo, and Paul Simon. But everybody that plays with us on either or all of our albums either played with us in the old days or they're one degree off. Yeah. You know, like Sheila E. didn't play with us because she wasn't born. No, she was a little baby then. But we played some shows with her dad, Pete Escovito, things like that, you know. Yeah. Um, so the new album is... You know, it's a, a combination of some old tunes. Some of those are ones we, we tried to really do them the way we did them then, like Gemini is kind of really keeping to that sort of our 60s psychedelics feel. And then Dressed in Black, which is um, Mary Ellen singing about her, her uh, failed relationship or her brief relationship with uh, Dickie from Blue Cheer. Um, we wrote a new bridge for that and we kind of changed it a little bit, but we used to do this song in the old days. So some of them go all the way back. Um, Waller Street Blues, which is our, our fun song about the Haight-Ashbury. We just wrote a new verse for it and Mary Gannon put in a little spoken word commentary about how the Haight-Ashbury has changed. But that was the first song we wrote as a band. Um, and Waller Street was that the apartment where Mary and Marla lived and, and we wrote it about the funny place that they were living. Um, what does it mean to you that for all these artists that you played with back in the sixties, you know, the Jackson Browns and the Bob Weirs, what does it mean for you that they're willing to come back 50 years later and they still want to play on your record? They still want to be a part of your band's legacy. That must be so fulfilling. It's totally, it's totally fulfilling. Oh. Um, Jackson tells us that when we had our rehearsal space at the heliport in Sausalito, we had the big a heliport hangar and then there was another building where a lot of other bands practiced but we had this giant room and Jackson for a while was living on a houseboat in Sausalito and he says he used to come outside our practice hall and listen to us practice but he was shy and he didn't think it would be okay for him to knock on the door and come in so he only ever listened from outside oh wow yeah <laughs> so but Jackson and, and his partner, Deanna, and I have become really dear friends through the years. And Jackson and I have done a lot of yoga together. And so Jackson was just, you know, wonderful about um, wanting to be on the album. And it was really, and Buffy St. Marie was our first guest on the album, other than Wavy Gravy. And Buffy and Jackson 
go back. Buffy lives here on Kauai, so we, we've had times, musical times together in the last week. Um, so Buffy is a really uh, important inspiration and friend to me and then now to the band. Oh. Um, so yeah, we, we and Bobby, we're, you know, we were on the bus together and Bobby and I were about the same age and um, we used, I used to go hear Jerry play before the Grateful Dead existed at his, um, his bluegrass band when I was in high school in Palo Alto and Bobby was there. So we all go back to when we were like, you know, 16. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Gosh, that's that's so incredible. Just I, I love hearing these stories. I love hearing about how this amazing album came together. Listeners, I encourage you again one last time, find out more about our guests' work by visiting www.aceofcups.com. Denise, while I have you here, one last question that I'm particularly excited to ask of you because of all the experience you're bringing to the table right now. Do you have any last tips to share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward? Don't give up. You know, don't give up because you never know what or what's going to open doors for you. Keep playing your music and keep in touch with the love that you have for playing. And um, it may not be in the timetable that you think, um, but you never know what could happen. And so um, I just say keep playing and and don't and don't um, take for granted the uh, precious gift of playing with people that you love to play with. Listeners, if Denise Kaufman and Ace of Cups can wait 50 years to get that debut album out and not give up, then surely you can't give up either. Denise, this has been a joy for me. Thank you so much for being on this week. Ryan, thank you so much for having me and and shining your light on the band. We really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to the Break the Business podcast.